0: I'm Rob.
1: Hi, and I'm Mike.
0: And you're listening to The Doctor Who Show. And yes, that is a different voice. Joining us from sunny Southern California today, it's Mike Salko. How are you, Mike?
1: Oh, doing great. Great to be here.
0: Excellent, excellent. As people who heard our last monthly episode will know, while Season 10 is on, or Series 10 I should say, Dave and I are taking a break from each other on the monthly shows and doing what he calls Doctor Light and Companion Light episodes and it's up to you to decide who the Doctor and who the Companion is. And this time around I'm here with Mike, so it's, it's really good to sit down with you Mike. Uh, last time we sat down we were talking about Galley 1. Here we are, we're going to talk about, well later in the episode, Season 27 of Doctor Who.
1: Yes, uh, this, is, this is a big part of my favorite part of Doctor Who fandom history. Um, I'm a big Andrew Cartmel fan. You could say I'm a Cartmel master fan if you wanted to. <laughs> um, that's terrible. I, I'm so sorry. But uh, no, the, the season 24 through 26, as well as the, the new adventure novels, is really my era of Doctor Who. So uh, this is something I just recently went into is even though these came out in 2010, I only just picked these up about a year and a half ago. So these are still pretty new to me as well.
0: Yes, and what Mike is talking about there are the big finish interpretations of the season 27 stories, long shrouded in the mists of time, and we'll be getting to those later in the episode. But for now, I want to ask you, Mike, about series 10.
1: Yeah, season 10 so far, um, I would say it's been consistently good, bordering very good at times. Um, The pilot's the only episode that really blew me away. But otherwise, I think it's just had a consistent level of enjoyable to, to very good. Smile, of course, is kind of a throwaway episode. I don't know that I'll ever watch it again. I did greatly enjoy uh, Knock Knock. I thought that was really the high point aside from the pilot, even though I know that was a pretty divisive episode. Very much so. Thin Ice, I don't know if I enjoyed quite as much as other people. And I think that's really just because I was really shaken up about Pete not being on the show anymore. So, <laughs> just going to ride that joke into the ground.
0: You actually dropped a mini podcast about that, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I broke out the time scoop controls for the first time in quite a while so I could talk about that. Uh, It was kind of a fun little aside I did just lamenting the loss of Pete from our show. Uh, Got some really fun feedback on that (laughs) one. So uh, it's it's I'm kind of holding back now as far as trying not to go overboard with it. Uh, I kind of almost went to a big thing about capitalism and how uh, Jamie Matheson was lashing out against BBC and their merchandising of Doctor Who. Oh, (laughs) Uh, well, you know, you saw the sonic screwdriver was destroyed and just all these pieces You know, the doctor's blind, just like uh, Moffat's blind to everything going on around him. It's no, there wasn't enough meat there. So Mm -hmm. and I love Moffat. But uh, yeah, so I, I think it's been a really solid season. And I think it's one that we'll hopefully be looking back at after it's over and thinking Moffat, Capaldi, anyone else attached to the show went out on a very high note.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you're pretty much on the same page as, as us, and well me especially, I think the pilot and Oxygen were my sort of high points, but they're still not really high, high points, I'm still expecting there to be 8s out of 10s, 9s out of 10s, maybe even 10s out of 10s yet to come, uh, and the episodes in between the pilot and um oxygen were, were, were okay they're enjoyable straightforward adventures as Dave says that's what he's been asking for all this time now we've got them hey how can we say it's a bad thing but nothing's really got up there yet for me
1: see and it's going to give me some time and distance before I can decide this or not but I think the pilot might have supplanted the 11th hour for me as far as the ideal introductory episode to Doctor Who
0: wow that's a big call
1: It is. And that's why I need some time and distance. Uh, But so far, I think I've watched it three times. And each time I find something new I enjoy about it or appreciate about it.
0: Yeah, no, I can I can see that I can see how that would challenge. But the 11th hour has long been a lot of people's, you know, favorite.
1: Yeah, and, and they're both incredible. I mean, either way, I think they're both fantastic for what they do.
0: Absolutely, well thank you for that uh, We have a long listener email that we haven't been including on our weekly shows for a few weeks now And I wanted to save it up for this episode So I think you've got a copy of it there as well it's Yes. from uh, Wanda on uh, Twitter, Fishy Wanda, Fishy underscore Wanda Who's a great uh, correspondent with us during this uh, current series And she's asked some, uh, some general questions which I think we can maybe uh, help out with, Mike Are you ready? I am ready Okay, she says, Hi Rob, thank you once again for allowing me to ask you some questions. They have been bugging me every time I look into anything who related or go to some sort of who convention. Firstly, I don't understand the beef with Eccleston. I know everyone has their favourite version of The Doctor for perfectly legitimate reasons, though when it comes to Eccleston, he is always skipped when either referencing him or when suggested to watch Who episodes. I understand that he doesn't really talk much about his time on Who, and the whole time seems to be shrouded in mystery on his departure and why he may or may not have chosen to come back for the specials. I might just pause there, Mike. Is that your impression of Eccleston, that people sort of skip over him these days
1: yeah i wouldn't go so far as to say there's a beef with him because i don't hear too many people bad-mouthing him in particular you know there's some people who really don't care for the era they feel it's maybe a little bit too childish at times things like that but it seems like he's pretty well received if anything i would say it's kind of the hartnell syndrome if you look at doctor who uh, best doctor polls hartnell's usually hovering around the bottom which is sad because he's fantastic and I'm not trying to change the subject, but I think a big part of that is because so little of his era survived and maybe it's very different from what we think of as modern Doctor Who that people just sort of overlook it. And the same thing with Eccleston that we only had maybe 12 or 13 stories or episodes. There's just not that bulk of material out there that people can really latch onto and say, that's my absolute favorite. As well as also the show is really finding its footing at that time. So I think there were some episodes that worked really well, as well as some episodes that floundered quite a bit. And again, that's nothing to do with The Ninth Doctor. I think The Ninth Doctor was consistently excellent throughout the run. It's just that maybe the show itself wasn't consistently well done.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, and I think there are some great stories in that first series of Eccleston, but why would people not suggest them? Well, you look at Tennant, and he's cuddlier, he's prettier, um, he's fluffier. <laughs> You can sort of see if you're trying to entice someone into something, maybe don't show them the more spiky doctor, the guy in the leather jacket. Show them the cuter guy, perhaps. Maybe that's why people go to a tenant story. A tenant story which might be just as good as an Eccleston story, but the doctor himself is maybe more instantly likable, instantly watchable. Eccleston might be more of an acquired taste. That might be how I'd look at it.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think another piece of it as well is that with uh, with later doctors ten, eleven, and twelve, we've seen them interact with different companions along the way. So you get a chance for a different dynamic that maybe if you don't care for ten and Rose, you would still have ten and Martha or ten and Donna. Same thing with uh, with Smith and and Capaldi going forward, and with with nine, it's sort of like you get either the era where he's traveling with Rose, the era where Jack's around, or it's over. Mm, that's um, right. And especially for myself, I I enjoy listening to a lot of the the Big Finish stuff, reading some of the novels, things like that. And the fact that there's no real gaps along the way also makes it a little frustrating because there's no chance to introduce maybe a novel-specific character, a comic-specific character, things along those lines. It feels like we know Nine's entire story. And um, that may not be something that really impacts most fans, but for me, I feel a little frustrated with it.
0: Yeah, the uh the only Eccleston comic I've read from Titan, I think that was Weapons of Mass Destruction, it was it was the later sort of part of the series where he's with Jack and, and Rose and it even seemed a bit of a stretch as to where they were wedging that story in. So yeah, I, I get what you mean by that. I'll continue with Wanda's email Because it is long And we've got to crack through I can understand Why some people May find an annoyance With this And I think that's Reference to Eccleston Not coming back For the uh, the specials And so on Though to be perfectly honest As a teenager Loving the X-Files And watching it Year to year From beginning to end To only have the lead Main actor David Duchovny Blatantly put down The show that made him Hugely famous And vowed to never do anything like that ever again. A little funny since he's back on the show again. It broke my little teenage heart and I haven't dared to watch old or new X-Files again. Um, I don't think Eccleston's really put down the show, um from what I've seen he's he certainly commented that the production team he hasn't named names but he said elements of the production team he didn't particularly get along with and that seemed to be the issue as as far as the character goes I think he really enjoyed it and in fact he's even reprised it in in a YouTube video here and there when some I guess kid has been sick or I think someone was getting married or something and he he sort of acted as the doctor on these little videos have you seen those
1: Mike? Yeah, I have, you know, and and that's my biggest thing is that he's he's very respectful of the fandom, uh, the fans and fandom. And I think that's really critical is that, you know, it doesn't mean that he needs to show up at conventions or anything like that. Or, you know, I understand if he doesn't want to do some 20 page interview about his time on Doctor Who, that's fine. But the fact that he does take time out for fans when when they approach him or, or these YouTube videos, I think that's really special. And that's something we would hope for for any doctor.
0: Yeah, absolutely The letter goes on The other thing I have noticed, so it isn't more of a question And I hope doesn't come across as rough or insulting Is I don't think Classic Who fans realise how scary it is to be a new Who fan Doctor Who in its entirety is quite large Not just Classic Who episodes, but novels, comics, interviews, specials, etc So the past ten years or so is just the minuscule tip of the brilliant iceberg that is Who Agree with that, Mike?
1: Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, being a fan for so long, I'm, I, it's, it's tough for me to kind of relate. Um, but at the same time, when I came into who there was already 22, 23 years around, but, but at the same time, I understand that a lot of this material is not readily available or you have to purchase it rather than just being able to go onto a streaming service and watch it quite a bit of the time. Um, so I can see how it would be very intimidating. I think at the same time, it's one of the strengths of Dr. Who as a property as a whole is is knowing that i've been a fan of this for gosh almost 30 years now but i still i've still barely scaled the iceberg um Mm. you know it's there's still so many books comics audio plays um there's still episodes i haven't seen and the fact that there's missing episodes means that there's stories that nobody will ever get to see you know unless you were there originally when it broadcast so um I, i think it's something that can definitely be intimidating at the same time, it can be really advantageous to know that even if you hit a wilderness year or whatever it may be, that there's always all this different material out there you can seek out. Um, but at the same time, there's obstacles like finances, availability, if something's even legally available, or if you just have to track it down through whatever means you may have to. But um, I, I, I can see how it'd be scary. It Very much so. Yeah. and um, And I would just hope that the part of it that seems scary is is the breadth of Doctor Who as opposed to Who fandom. Because if it's Who fandom that's scary, we've got a problem.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think back to when I was young, maybe when I was watching the McCoy era. Uh, I was, what, about 12 when that started. And for me in Australia, it was quite easy to, to be obviously watching McCoy because he was on television – But from Pertwee through to Colin Baker, they were very easy to catch on television here as well. They were repeated quite often. So it was only really the black and white Doctors who were a mystery to me when I was a kid, and even not so much of a mystery because their stories were coming out in the Target novels, which I was reading, and it all seemed very achievable to sort of know everything, in quotation marks, about Doctor Who. And then I've just built on it as the years have progressed. But for someone stepping in now, if they wanted to be into all of it, and I guess this comes back to what Wanda's about to say in her letter, yeah, gosh, uh, monetarily, that's a great point, Mike. I think monetarily (laughs) is the big one. You can get through this stuff in time if you've got a bit of time. Maybe if you have a daily commute, you can be knocking off a big finished story each day, for example, and get through them relatively quickly. But do you have the money to buy them all is the question.
1: Yeah. You know, and specifically, I know she mentioned a few points about going through the the series of, of classic who and watching it. Uh, there's a book and I can't think of the title offhand. Um, it's by Graham Burke and Robert Smith. I want to say it's something along the lines of who's 50 and it came out around the 50th anniversary. But they pick 50 essential Doctor Who episodes. And it's not to say the best, but the 50 classic episodes you should really go back and watch. So that's good because if you're willing to jump around a little bit and experience some different stuff, it's a good way to find out maybe what is to your taste, Mm. as well as, you know, just. Getting some of the real highlights of the Doctor Who Story without having to sit through The Dominators or whatever it may be
0: (laughs) And that's been some of the advice Given to Wanda and it's advice I've Actually given her online as well um, To sort of hey grab this one from this era And this one from that era but her response is Well she's lived through other old shows like The Goodies you know (laughs) she she can take it she can Hack it in fact she's recently I've noticed On Twitter been saying she's just uh, finishing Off her Hartnell collection on DVD So she's been right back At the start and slogging through some episodes Which aren't always the most fun But sometimes have redeeming features I watched The Ark recently and I thought This is quite charming, I know people make fun of the monoids And their wigs and all that, but Eh, I don't mind it
1: It's a fun episode, fun concept And you know, you've mentioned the goodies a few times I have to throw out there, I've never seen the goodies And until about two months ago I thought it was something about maybe like some old criminals Who kind of were trying to be good guys Like the (laughs) A-Team or something like that I had no idea And that's, I watched the opening credits and I'm like Oh, this is like the Monkeys.
0: Dave will be... Dave will be horrified to hear that because he has a
1: goodies podcast. <laughs> I know. I know. And that's why I just kind of, that's what actually led me to go check it out. I was, I was like, I keep hearing them mention this, so I need to go see. And, and I was just mind blown when I saw that. So mm. sorry, Dave, I apologize.
0: <laughs> Continuing with the letter. There are of course, some people who have no interest in watching classic who fair enough, since it does span over 50 years, but coming from what I have witnessed, all the new who episodes will occasionally, if not always reference something which has happened within classic who, which is one of the many reasons I want to watch Classic Who. And I'll just pull up there. Do you think, Mike, during the Moffat era, there's been perhaps a little more looking back than in the Russell T era? Or or am I just sort of making that up in my head?
1: Uh, I think it was maybe a little more on the nose. I I think that they've more explicitly called things out, whereas in the the RTD era, it might have been a throwaway line.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think so. And probably having the 50th anniversary and being a bit more overt around that
1: probably didn't help either. No, that's that's a very big one there.
0: Okay. Uh, finishing off now. Not many people within the hoovian world are very forthcoming with advice and suggestions, so I personally want to thank you for being so brilliant. Oh, thanks, Wanda. I'm blushing now. Um, you've helped a lot with questions and suggestions, which make it a lot easier to delve into the world. That is who kindest regards from Wanda. P.S. Apologies for the long email. Well, thank you again, Wanda, for writing in. And I hope we've uh, been able to answer your questions in some way.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And um, speaking of this podcast, as well as some others, uh, podcasting is what really brought me into Who fandom. I've been a fan of Doctor Who for 30 years, but it's only within the last four to five years I've really embraced fandom. And it's podcasts I have to thank for that. So, you know, just one of the key things is just as far as being a fan and and dealing with other fans is just always be kind. Mm. You know, remember that not everybody's going to like the same thing um but just be respectful and, you know, if people are looking for suggestions, that's a great opportunity to make friends. So um, it's, it's great for me to hear that as well. So thank you, Wanda.
0: Yeah. And, and my advice would be to always find your, your niche as well, because Doctor Who is such a broad church. There are many different kinds of fans, some who only like the classics, some who only like the new, some who like both, some who want to argue about every point of continuity ever. <laughs> others who just don't care a jot. Um, you look around, you find the people you resonate with and you hang out with them. Because uh, it is such a broad church I guess you can't be friends with everyone Just find your place Agreed All right, let's move on to the main part of this episode Something I'm really, really looking forward to getting into Because I've been doing homework on this for weeks As have you, Mike, I believe <laughs> um, Notwithstanding your long interest in the uh, the period And what we're going to talk about And that's season 27 The season, the TV season that never was
1: Yeah, I guess you could call this one Into the Woods Because that's where we ended up.
0: (laughs) Yes. Now, obviously, there were plans put together for season 27 before it was all um, put on hold and eventually cancelled. So there have always been these tantalising little clues, names of episodes, scenes, perhaps. This is how we'd start an episode. You know, don't know what would happen after it, but this is definitely how it would start. And these have been teased out over time, initially in a... um, An article in Doctor Who magazine, I believe, that sort of pulled together the writers and got them to flesh out their ideas a bit and did a bit of its own research. And more recently, of course, about, what, five, six years ago, Big Finish actually made audio versions, interpretations, if you will, of season 27. So, Mike, your thoughts on season 27, these audios and such, before we actually get into each one individually.
1: Well, Season 27 has always had a mythical status because we've seen so much of what was considered the Cartmol Master Plan, which didn't actually exist. Uh, that's something that fandom just kind of wrote around his era. But where the Doctor was going to go, um, the idea of seeing that Doctor with a different companion, those were things that really seemed exciting, as well as how would Ace depart from the series. Those are things that really, I think, appealed to a lot of people who were fans of that era. We sort of got it with the new adventures, but that was extremely different from all the plans for season twenty-seven. And and Rob, how many, how much have you really read about or, or heard about season twenty-seven going into this?
0: Going into this episode today, I've seen that Doctor Who magazine article, and I've seen the uh, the little documentary. I'm not sure which McCoy DVD it's on, but there is a documentary about season twenty-seven.
1: It's it's on survival.
0: Survival, oh, obviously. And,
1: yeah. Yeah, so Survival is loaded with amazing features. Uh, if you pick only one McCoy, that's the one to get, just for the special feature value. Uh, but yeah, so they kind of walked through some of the series, uh, some of the stories they intended to utilize. And it's kind of like you said earlier, is a lot of these weren't stories that were fleshed out. It was perhaps just an opening scene, which would lead into something else. That's very interesting because you know, it, fandom has had 20 years now or more to kind of build up what that story would have been. Whereas Andrew might have come in with something different for these big finish audios than what was actually planned or what fandom expected from those stories.
0: Exactly. And obviously the times were different. The presence of John Nathan Turner, I think, may have changed some of the stories as well. Even if what we see in these big finishes are what Andrew might have really, really intended. I can imagine JNT jumping in there and making changes and, you know.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Thin Ice, which is the first story we'll discuss, he wanted the Tower of London involved because he'd been doing some kind of production involving the Tower of London at that time, and he thought that would be something worth including in the series. So then Andrew asked to come back and tell Mark, please include the Tower of London in your story. Find a way to make it happen. Um, so, so I mean, for, he had faults. He had strengths. But John Nathan Turner would sometimes just get these wacky ideas and throw them in there. <laughs> you know, uh, let's go to Lanzarote and film something, make a make a story for that. You know, so so I think a lot of the time he was more stunt oriented maybe than some of the other showrunners have been.
0: Oh, definitely notorious for stunt casting. Beryl Reed and Earthshock is is an obvious one, but uh, even someone like Nicholas Parsons in The Curse of Fenric, well known in the UK, not so well known outside of the UK, but people are going, oh my God, Nicholas Parsons is in this. You know, very much into the stunt casting and getting some mileage, some PR from his uh, decisions. J and T.
1: Sure. And that's one of those things, even looking at the modern series, is there's times you'll hear that there's a guest actor, and they're usually someone who is famous in the UK, not so much outside the UK. And I'm not really sure how much that does bump ratings over there, or if it really doesn't have any sort of impact.
0: Well, I think back in the day, it enabled him to do um, little deals with the Radio Times, maybe a photo shoot and so on, you know, uh, again, UK-centric. But looking back in, in the day, the show was very much UK-centric. It's only in, in New Who that it's really sort of reached out to America in a, in a meaningful way on the show. Obviously, back going back to the 80s, there were big conventions and things in America. The show reached out in other ways. But on on screen, that American presence really wasn't there until New Who.
1: Sure. And as you mentioned Radio Times, it's worth remembering also, these were all pre-mainstream internet so you didn't have online stories or news groups or anything like that that were readily available to the mass public. So something like Radio Times would be a very big deal, whereas now it's not such a big deal. It's just one more news source among thousands.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely right. And and we see that uh, uh, even in the ratings now, but we won't go down that rabbit hole uh, <laughs> about how the world has changed in so many different ways since the uh, sure. 80s.
1: You know, um so so I don't want to give away too many of my thoughts. I'll kind of dole them out as we go through the different stories and the way that the the way this would developed as far as how it works out. Um I, I did get to see Andrew at Long Island Who convention back last uh last winter. And one of the things that was really interesting to me that he pointed out about this series was that Big Finish made them stick to the titles that were listed in that article. Um they they'd gained such a mythic status among fans that you had to have. Uh, I think a thin ice was originally called ice time. But aside from that, you had to have crime of the century. You had to have animal, and you had to have Earth Aid. Whatever you chose to do with them was was beside the point. But you had to have those titles listed. Yes, and as we
0: go on, because I know it's in my notes at least, we will learn the preferred titles for these stories. And it's, <laughs> it it just blows my mind that so many years on, Andrew can be sitting there doing these scripts and he's forced to use a title that he himself doesn't even want to use for some of these that's quite weird
1: sure and i'm even thinking I, I believe they did song of the space whale at some point which was one of the it was supposed to be a fifth doctor story supposed to be a sixth doctor story and then it just fell by the wayside and i think big finish finally did get around to making that one but i think they let them use a different title so right i, I don't know what was the specific sticking point on the titles here but maybe they thought to make them marketable that would be the ideal
0: Absolutely. Now, before we get into each individual episode, I've made a few uh, brief notes on just the series in general as it, as it sits as a big finish creation. The first is that all of these uh, big finish creations are four-parters, and on television some of them would have been three-parters. So already some of the stories are being stretched out perhaps beyond what they would have been on screen.
1: Yeah, because the the way that the McCoy era was structured is you had two four-parters, two three-parters. Usually there was a couple of stories that were studio-bound and a couple that were location-setting. And then one of the other things that John Nathan-Turner really influenced was he wanted two stories that were traditional and then two stories that were a little more oddball. Um, And, you know, you can kind of point to Silver Nemesis and Remembrance of the Daleks being traditional stories – Whereas Greatest Show and Happiness Patrol were really oddball stories.
0: Yeah, that's right. Some of the original sketches for these stories were very brief, which we've already touched on. And the stories here in this big Finnish series are reordered. The original order was going to be Earth Aid, Thin Ice, Crime of the Century, and Animal. And here, that's completely thrown out the window. Earth Aid, for example, isn't first. It's last in this big finish series. And uh, for a series where Ace is meant to leave, she doesn't leave at all in this series. So, you know, there are differences. It's, it's kind of what season 27 would have been if it was in an alternate universe, maybe.
1: Yeah. Well, the biggest missing item here, um, missing from something that was already missing, uh, is there's another story that was called Elixion, uh, written by Robin Mukherjee. And uh, it was a story that was set inside of an asteroid. Uh, there was going to be silent monks, I believe, who might have been insectoid. And there was going to be an evil kind of capitalist character. Um, I forget his name offhand. But the idea was he was going to be one step ahead of the doctor the whole time. So uh, you would have a lot of caverns, things like that, which are very traditional Doctor Who. But, but there was supposed to be a character that could outmanipulate or at least go head to head with the doctor. And that's another one of those famous stories that was actually further along than most.
0: Yes. Now, I'd originally heard of that as possibly being a season 26 story, although in reference to 27, am I right in thinking that was one where the Doctor may have regenerated?
1: It was up in the air. It was It was quite likely that if that fell last that we would have seen McCoy's regeneration. A lot of it just would have depended on who the new producer was, as well as just whatever contract situation worked out. But I could see that if they had a character who could outsmart the Doctor, or at least go head-to-head, that that would be a good situation in which to do it.
0: Okay. Shall we rip into these episodes?
1: Yeah, let's do so.
0: All right. I think uh, you can take lead on Thin Ice.
1: Okay. So, Thin Ice by Mark Platt, Moscow, 1967. The Doctor and Ace have arrived behind the Iron Curtain, and the Soviet Union is seeking a new weapon that will give it mastery in the Cold War. What is the secret of Martian relics? As the legendary warlord Sazir returns to life, the Doctor is faced with some of his oldest and deadliest enemies. The fate of the Earth and the future of Ace are now intertwined.
0: Bom, bom, bom. And before we move on, I've got some production notes from the CD sleeve of Thin Ice. This is from Mark Platt, the writer. He says, Back in 1989, before Ghostlight had even aired on TV, Doctor Who scriptwriter Andrew Cartmel asked me for a story for the next season. He wanted me to bring back The Ice Warriors and to set the story in the 1960s, because the BBC was very good at period drama. Since I was still at school in the 60s and could remember it, I felt like a period piece myself. I'd really wanted to set the story on a terraformed Mars, but Andrew was adamant about 60s London, and there were some other strings attached too. Ben Aronovich told me that this was Ace's last story, so I would be writing her out. And then the series producer, John Nathan Turner, took me to a pub and told me he'd just done a deal with the London Dungeon, so could I write that in as a location? (laughs) (laughs) And that's what we were referring to earlier So I started again The London dungeon could house some strange Martian relics And there would be bikers with helmets resembling those worn by ice warriors I could link up my episodes to the following story And we should talk about that in a moment too, Mike, actually Which would introduce Ace's replacement By having the Doctor be present at her birth Even deliver her 20 years earlier And then her dad would appear in both stories First as a small-time crook And then as a big-time gangster with a cat burglar daughter and then the series got cancelled. By now, thanks to the illustrious efforts of David Richardson, here we are back. And it's lovely to be working with Andrew and Sylvester and Sophie again. And so it goes on. I won't read the whole thing. Mike, some changes in, uh, in Thin Ice, the audio version. I guess the big one would be we're off in Moscow in 1967 and not London. Well, at least initially initially.
1: Yeah, uh it's it's interesting because it feels like there was already a lot of focus on Russian stuff throughout the Kartmel era and it's important to kind of step back and remember that that was during the Cold War while it was still an active concern or or when it was coming to a close Russia was still the enemy in many ways to the west um nothing like today um but anyway um <laughs> you know uh so so it's it's kind of I when I was first listening to these I had to reframe my state of mind to kind of take that into account that Russia was present in quite a bit of our media at that point, um, as far as just a setting for stories or adversaries for characters, things like that.
0: That's right. And to pick up on the the Ace connection that we were mentioning a moment ago, this story was going to ride out Ace, although in the original series 27, it would have been the second story in the season. So what we have here is a story where the the Cartmore master plan, which didn't exist, but which now exists in a timey-wimey way, weaves its way through. Does Ace stay or leave? No, she actually stays in this story.
1: She does. And I love Sophie Aldred. I really do. And there's quite a few big finish plays I really enjoy with Ace. But her not leaving in the series was probably my biggest disappointment or, or my biggest source of frustration with the series
0: it sort of makes the whole exercise redundant in some way that the doctor has been giving ace all these trials we don't know why in this story we have the doctor communicating with the time lords and it's it's time for them to decide will she go to the academy or not and it's kind of a damn squib at the end it's like no we've decided she's not coming oh okay then (laughs) and that's
1: it yeah <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things that this is one of the mythical things we've heard about for decades now is that Ace was going to go to the Time Lord Academy and, and be this punk rock Time Lord, whatever it may have been. And people like it, people don't. There's there's a really split opinion on it. But at the same time, having a chance to show Sylvester with a new companion was a really big opportunity, as well as a chance to graduate the character of Ace. And I think that there was already so much done with that character and said about that character in season 25 and season 26 that you have to question if we're going to keep her around, what are we going to do with her? Mm. And unfortunately, she's just kind of around.
0: That's right. That's right. And it's I, I've i had it explained to me that Big Finish wanted Sophie to stay so that this would still fit in with all their other audios. But I thought, you know, it's, it's sort of outside of that in these lost stories area. Surely she could leave in this series and still remain in the other series. It, it wouldn't be that discombobulating to fans, would it?
1: No, she could have always come back at a later point. If it was really something that people were upset about, they could have written an additional story, which just waved that away. You know, uh, the Time Lord sent her back a la Romana with, uh, you know, go help the doctor for a while. So I I think that could have worked. From what I understand, they realized during the production – They didn't have to write Sophie out, whereas with TV there would have been contracts, things like that. There there was no such contract in place that would prevent them from having her around any longer. So from their perspective, I think it was really a thing where they viewed it as a positive to have the really popular character stick around and bring the new character in. And I think as we'll see over the next few stories, it only served to detract from rain as opposed to enhance the stories
0: massively so you've uh, you've preempted some of my notes there that's that's going to become <laughs> a big talking point i think but before we go down that rabbit hole the, the return of the ice warriors here i think that would have been really exciting on television and it's it's pretty cool on audio at least to me what what are your thoughts on the ice warriors being back
1: they're a race that definitely lends themselves to the audio format um, because they sound very intimidating. You have the very distinctive voices. Uh, I, I think they work really well. As, whereas they're, they're a race that can be very diplomatic as well, um, whereas certain races just get very shouty. Uh, the, t- the the Ice Warriors have a lot to say. Uh, so I, I felt like they worked well here. I thought it was interesting because we're dealing with, I think it was about seven or so Ice Warriors who've been exiled to Earth. Hmm. And that's what the Doctor at Ace are tasked with is, is getting rid of them. And it just the ideas sort of that went into play is that we're seeing ice warriors that are living off of fish fingers. Uh, <laughs> the, these are not majestic warriors. These are some people who've had to make deals with with crime bosses and Russians to try to, to get by. So, so it's kind of interesting because a lot of the time when we think of characters returning or villains returning, we think of it in this very majestic, overblown way. And instead, this was a little more low key.
0: It is, and some fans I know have taken those fish finger scenes to be a bit too comedic and and really sort of downplaying Ice Warriors for them, but I kind of take it more in the way that you're talking about it there, that they are a bit desperate, they are doing what they can to survive, I also found it just a bit funny, too. And, and there is a humour in late 80s Doctor Who that's there. It is a kids' show. It is fun, you know? So I didn't feel that was too strange. Maybe if there was a Capaldi episode where he's feeding a Ice Warrior fish fingers, I'd find that very strange. Heck, we've got Empress of Mars coming up. Maybe <laughs> that will still happen. Who knows? But to me, it was okay. But uh, I don't know. Have you seen any reaction to that from people not enjoying those fish fingery moments?
1: i've seen some people kind of saying it's it's not a very good thing and uh to to me is it it was used to show the desperation as opposed to making it a comedic thing if they spent the entire episode constantly talking about how much they were craving fish fingers I, I, it would have been really frustrating but that wasn't the case mm.
0: now one thing which i'd kind of put at the back of my mind from those dvd documentaries and the magazine article which i'd read in an even longer period of time before is that these four stories kind of have a, a running theme largely rain creevy but also her her dad marcus creevy who were introduced to in this episode um here of course he's uh running around in the late 60s with Raina karen Skya, who is rain's mother and I kind of like this Marcus Creepy character, and I like the transition he makes between the uh, the first and the second story. But let's concentrate on him here. He's <laughs> like a, a small time London gangster. It's a great character. Do, do you like oh, him? Oh,
1: I, I I think he's wonderful. Um, he he falls into that late eighties era Doctor Who criminal, who is a criminal, but they're not a, an evil, mean person. If that makes sense. No. Um, you know, and and I I don't want to say Sabalom Glitz because that brings a lot of baggage. But I could see why the Seventh Doctor would be close with this character, even though he's maybe not entirely on the up and up. Uh, because I think that Marcus Creevy really does have some honorable, noble traits, as well as being a gangster. But, you know, he's not an ultra-violent guy. He's not mean, anything like that. And, and Ricky Groves, the actor, if I had to pick an MVP for this series, it would probably be Ricky Groves.
0: I think that's fair enough. I think he does enough in the two episodes he's in, uh, the two stories he's in, to uh, to to get that. For me, I, I just like this kind of character, you know, because I, I love, you know, crime dramas that are set in London and so on, and he just comes straight from those sort of shows or the pages of books that are doing those sorts of stories. And uh, I really enjoyed seeing that kind of character in Doctor Who. He, he feels there are, there are elements of these stories, and we'll talk about this a bit more when we get to the next one, that you think, mm, would they have done this in 80s Who? And you think, no. But this character i can see very much being an 80s who
1: yeah some of what i was reading uh he originally was going to be more of a hippie type character and i'm very glad they didn't go that route i, I think that what we got the the kind of michael caine sort of character really was was excellent
0: yeah absolutely what about the uh, woman he's in a relationship reyna Karen Skyer, who becomes rain's mother obviously played by Beth Chalmers, who also plays Rain, (laughs) albeit with a Russian accent this time around. She's interesting in this story, given that she doesn't have a lot to do at the start, aside from being the pregnant partner of Marcus Creevy. But then it twists into something a lot bigger towards the end and I'm not sure whether we should give that away if people are going to listen to this. We perhaps should give a spoiler warning at this juncture that we will talk some (laughs) spoilers about these episodes, the big broad stuff, but maybe her role towards the end of the story we could gloss over a little But It is pretty major.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's something very different from what you would expect as far as an ice warrior story, things like that. Um, as we kind of talk around it, I, I thought it was a good performance. I, I believe the chemistry between those two characters certainly, which uh, a, a London gangster and a and a Russian military type person, you know, not not something you would see as a natural fit, but the way that they play it works very well. As far as what happens later, it's interesting. I don't know if it was my favorite thing, but I thought it worked, if that makes any sense.
0: Yes. Yes, it does. Now, I'm, I'm cognizant that we should crack through these four episodes, and then loop back around and sort of tie them all together at the end. So perhaps we could give a thumbs up and a thumbs down moment for this episode and a mark out of 10 if you're ready to move on.
1: Sure. So I I thought the writing was solid. Um, I thought there was some really good moments uh, character-wise. I did like Ace in this particular story. Um, I would give it a mild thumbs up. Mm -hmm. Probably a 6 out of 10.
0: Okay. I would go with a 7 out of 10. So slightly higher. My thumbs up would be particularly the the marcus Creevy and, and raina Skyer relationship. It felt quite real to me, especially when he finds out she's pregnant. He just doesn't want to know. And he says pointedly a few times, are you sure it's mine? That seemed like a very sort of 60s man kind of response, you know, putting it back on her, suggesting that she's been sleeping with other people is the underlying sort of subtext there, um, <laughs> when clearly she hasn't been. And I thought, this relationship feels real, and then when the baby's born and he's doting on her, you know, I I think that's just great Uh, The thumbs down probably is the Time Lords turning Ace down making that whole exercise and training her up being redundant, it just sort of undermines the whole Cartmel master plan, which again I appreciate didn't exist, but the Doctor has been doing something with Ace and now it seems to be all for naught, so that got a bit of a thumbs down from me
1: um, I, I would agree completely. You know, is is this was a big opportunity, and I understand from a marketing perspective as well as just the fun of having Sophie around. I can see why they would have made that choice, but it didn't work.
0: Agreed. Moving on to Crime of the Century by uh, Andrew Cartmill. The blurb on this is, the year is 1989. In London, safe-cracker Rain Creevy breaks into a house and finds more than the family jewels. In the Middle East, the kingdom of Saif Udine is being terrorised by Soviet invaders and alien monsters, and on the Scottish border, a highly guarded facility contains an advanced alien weapon. These are all part of the Doctor's master plan, but master plans can go awry. Mike, what do you have from the CD sleeve?
1: Sure. So this is written by Andrew Cartmell back in November of 2010. And I will read this. Unfortunately, I don't have the dulcet tones. So I apologize. Just imagine you're hearing Andrew say this. (laughs) It was very strange returning to this story, like resuming an interrupted conversation after 20 years. Parts of it were still very present in my mind. The tale of rain, the debutante cat burglar, and her first encounter with the doctor had remained vivid in my mind. This was partly because it was a scenario I'd often quoted over the years, partly just because it was a good story. And I never had a chance to tell it properly. Other characters that made the long journey into daylight, perhaps most notably Rain's father. Choosing names for characters can be a ticklish business. Rain was originally called Rain Cunningham, but for a quick internet search revealed at least one person called that. So we borrowed a surname from a character in a stage play of mine, and Rain Creevy was born. Now we had a surname for her father, and we swiftly settled on the name of Marcus for him. Ricky Groves brought Marcus Creevy to life as part of a stellar cast who more than live, live up to the legendary status of this long-lost Doctor Who saga, now saved from oblivion after a couple decades and handsomely mounted as an audio adventure.
0: Yes, indeed. So, crime of the century. This one obviously kicks off to something Andrew has alluded to there in his notes. This big opening scene that Rain Creevy gets into a house under false pretenses. She's at a party. She cracks a safe. And who's inside? It's the Doctor what an opening, you know, it is a story Andrew's told over the years. And every time I've heard it, I've thought, gosh, that would be a great opening to a story. And here we actually have it opening this audio tale and it flows from there.
1: Yeah. And I think the fact that it's an audio tale makes the scene very interesting. The way it's laid out, if this was to be shown on TV, we would probably see rain skulking around the party, hiding behind a bush. It would be a very silent thing, almost like a pink Panther cartoon, Mm. but because it's audio that doesn't work. The only way you could do that is if she basically narrated the whole thing through her thoughts. Now, we do get a bit of that with her diary throughout this story. But the way that they do, it's really interesting that some half-drunk party-goer comes in and she basically explains to him everything she's about to do as far as how to break into a safe. And we get the party-going person. At first, I was a little thinking, I was thinking kind of, why is this character here? But as I stopped to think about it, it was actually a really clever way to show how talented Rain is and how slick she is.
0: Yes, absolutely. And she uh she ends up drugging the guy with uh, a cherry in his drink.
1: Yeah. It it's it's a little ridiculous, but it falls into that sort of avengers save cracker sort of thing. Um, it's just a slick move and and it really made me fall for the character immediately.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. She's got this slightly, uh, upper class, uh, touch to her voice. Obviously, she's, uh, she's been sent off to finishing school by her dad, uh, but she has a, a much more cultured voice when she's talking and she can fit in very well at this society party and, you know, go and crack this safe. I, I quite enjoyed her from the off too. And I was thinking, oh, but Ace is in this story. Ah. <laughs> You know, how is that going to fit? And, and this is going to become a running theme, I think, that A, these stories are out of order from how they should have been presented. Um Ace should have had her big story in the story we're going to talk about last here um, and then been written out in the story we just spoke about, which would have been the second story. And this would have been the third story, but here we're doing it as the second story and Ace is still in it. Am I confusing people out there? Maybe I am. And that's possibly <laughs> part of the trouble.
1: Yeah, they definitely had to shuffle things around as far as being able to fit Ace back in. So at the same time, we're getting this wonderful safe cracking scene. We're also getting Ace meeting up with the much older Marcus Creevey, who of course is in disbelief how she hasn't aged a day. We find out that the Doctor has actually been showing up every year for Rain's birthday, dropping off gifts, things like that. So the Doctor has been a presence in their life this whole time.
0: And it was at this moment it tweaked to me, oh, this follows on. This is... This is different for Classic Who, where we actually have characters aging and coming back in stories one after the other. This is something very normal, perhaps, in Modern Who. They could do this quite easily across a series. But for Classic Who, this is quite different. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this would be the equivalent of, say, if, if Father's Day was the first episode of, of the, the new era, and then it flowed into meeting Rose. That's that's kind of the best way I could explain it, Mm. It, but but yeah, it's it's the kind of thing we get where we get this long drawn out growth of our characters, whereas classic, who is very much just like, oh hi, I stowed away on your ship and now I'm going to travel with you. Yeah, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's that's that's, that's several characters. That's how it started. Um, You know, you would kind of learn a lot about them in that first story, and then there would be no character development until they left.
0: Agreed. Something else that's going on in this episode, which again. Slightly jarring because it just maybe doesn't feel like '80s Doctor Who. Is Ace is packed off to this Middle East country, which, to all intents and purposes, I, I assume is meant to be Afghanistan, but they're not going to call it Afghanistan. It has this made-up <laughs> name, and yeah. she, she's packed off there with a with a load of guns and vodka to uh, to sort of liaise with some Soviet soldiers. And I thought, mm, okay, we've seen Soviets in Curse of Fenric, but they were sort of World War Two generic sort of soviets but here would they have done a contemporary story in this way i'm not sure that they would have but i still like that it's there i still enjoy that this is part of the story and this is how it goes but when i'm applying those um they're not rose-tinted glasses but they are those glasses when i look back and try and think would this have actually happened in the 80s i'm not so sure that the second half of this story off to that uh country would have perhaps happened the way it does
1: no, very much from what I've heard Andrew talk about in the past. The only thing that existed in this story was that opening segment uh, with the safe cracking scene. And past that, there was no real plan in place. So I think this is where he kind of tried to come up with what would have been the crime of the century. And thinking back to the 80s is you had all these large companies or large countries selling guns and selling different military supplies to small countries. And what kind of becomes the the big trick here, and this isn't a big spoiler, is you have this character, uh, Prince Udine, who is fighting against the Russians. But he's also purchasing weapons from a rogue Russian military guy. So um, so that's kind of the interesting – it really – it goes back to the 80s and the way those things worked is that you might be supporting the Afghans and then five years later you're fighting against them with the same weapons you already sold them. And it also kind of goes into that corruption of Russia at that time. You know, people were not in it for the communism or the or the love of country. They were in it to try to make a buck.
0: Yeah, and and I think you're quite right to say that this goes back in terms of a, a story to the 80s. It was obviously going on. I assume what Andrew's done is looked back and thought, now what would be going on back then? What could I put situations? Could I put Ace into and the Doctor into? It makes sense from that point of view. But still from what would 80s Doctor Who on television have shown, I'm not sure they would have gone here. So it's it's a very interesting turn. And, and I quite enjoy it. I'll, I'll say that again. I, I quite enjoy it. But it just doesn't feel like television Doctor Who, if that makes sense.
1: No, it's, it's trying to visualize this story. The only way they would be doing it is with the standard BBC rock query, as well as uh, maybe some really bad Arabian Nights looking sets that would probably come across as somewhat offensive at this point. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, you know, I, I I can't see it turning out well. Um, you know, the other option would be as if there was just a bunch of big warehouses. Mm-hmm. And when I say I can't see it turning out well, I can't see it turning out well on a 1990 Doctor Who budget.
0: Yes. Now, the the characters themselves, you've already mentioned the Prince Saif Udin. No spoilers on how he ends up, but (laughs) I found him to be a fascinating character. He he had some sort of backstory with the Doctor. He was a great swordsman. He'd been to the Olympic Games. I felt that this was a really well-fleshed-out character within the parameters of an audio. I felt like I sort of had a feel for who he was and what he would actually be like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The fact that he was this master swordsman, uh, that he was all about the the freedom of his people, but was still open to making a buck if the opportunity arose. Uh, It it was a complex layered character. And again, I like the fact that not every character has to be explicitly good or evil, that they can kind of have that middle of the ground, middle of the road uh, affiliation, and that the Seventh Doctor is willing to compromise on occasion to still deal with those sort of people. Hmm.
0: He also has an offsider like a sort of a lieutenant for him, who um, on the little documentary audio pieces on the CD, uh, the actor who plays him, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, says he didn't want to do him in an overtly comedy way. He almost plays him with a British accent because these kind of guys would have been schooled at your Oxfords and Cambridges in England before going back to Afghanistan or whatever the country's called in this audio. And... In that way, his his offside or his lieutenant doesn't come across as sort of a comedy character uh, with a with a um, heavily accented and so on, which maybe some of the Russian characters in that first story did. You know, sometimes the, the accents can be laid on a bit thick. Here, we have a guy from this country, but he's got a British accent because he's been schooled in Britain. I, again, I found that quite realistic, and I, I was quite enjoying this, this um, setting. I just wish they'd called it Afghanistan and be done with it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kafiristan, we know what they're pretty much talking about. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, one of the things I love about Big Finish is that many of the stories have these extra features where you get to hear interviews with the cast and the writer and so on. And I, and I like the way he was coming at that, that he, he realized if I'm bumbling, then what does that say about the prince? Whereas if I'm very dignified, then you believe that the prince is even more competent than you might already.
0: Exactly. The doctor and Ace, we've we've kind of already covered in this story. Um, do you have anything more to say before we move on to a, a thumbs up and a thumbs down and a mark?
1: Yeah. Ace, again, I, I don't want to hammer it home too much, but unfortunately, anything she was handling in this story was something that we could have picked up later or that rain could have handled. There was nothing in the story that was explicitly necessary for Ace to be there. Mm. But but one other piece I want to ask you about is, uh, is not the Atraxi, but the Metatraxi. Uh, and what you thought of those, uh, an alien race of uh, bug people who are very noble, sort of like the Klingons.
0: I was really interested in them because I remembered at the, at the back of my head, I thought, Metatraxy, Metatraxy, where do I know Metatraxy? Have I just heard that in these documentaries? Have I read it somewhere, Metatraxy, Metatraxy? Then I thought, no, it's an Eighth Doctor novel. And then I did a bit of digging and I realized they popped up in Alien Bodies.
1: Oh, wow. Mm. Lawrence Miles is a wacky guy. I, I did not know that. You know, I love that book, but it's been a decade since I've read it, at least. I just, when I hear the name now, of course, I just hear the, the 11th Doctor shouting at a ship asking if anyone's violated the rules of the Atraxi. Um, that, that's where my brain goes at this point. <laughs> it, it's kind of a neat backstory thing. Is They were originally developed for a stage play that Andrew was writing along with Ben Aronovich and it didn't end up to, it developed into something else and they weren't involved but but that idea of having the metatracy and i could see them working very well on stage as well they have some very interesting verbal tics as a as a mild way of putting it
0: yes yes no i i quite enjoyed them and again it's going to be no spoiler that they come back in future stories that we're going to talk about here so i'm i'm pleased you you raised them because they become a bit of a a theme through this uh, season as well. Originally, would that have been the case? Mm, probably not. Uh,
1: but he, Doubtful. It's... Of course, then again, they might have had to stretch the budget across a few stories. Uh, now, now, one of the pieces, of course, and it's tough to say without, you know, it's not really a big spoiler, but uh, the Metatraxy speak via a translation circuit. And at one point, the Doctor fiddles with it a little bit, trying to supposedly help them. And they start speaking in California dude speak.
0: Yes. <laughs> it
1: seems like that's a pretty polarizing thing from things I've read about this. So how did that land with you?
0: That's an interesting question. Initially, I thought that's really funny. You know, it it is surfer speak. It's Bill and Ted speak. It's like, dude, you know, <laughs> it's that kind okay. of thing. And I thought this is really funny. Then it kind of started to grate on me as it came back again. Um, because it goes to a few different voices. And at the end, I was left a a bit on the fence about it. Initially, I quite liked it, but by the end of the story, I wasn't too sure.
1: It felt very self-indulgent, mm. but at the same time, I appreciated it as something a little different from what we've seen in the past.
0: Yeah, look, initially, I when I was thinking, this is just really funny, I was thinking it was maybe a bit Douglas adams Like, he'd have, you know, machines or robots talking in in funny voices, and here we have an alien talking with a very funny voice as well. So it kind of struck me in that way initially, but yeah, it did start to grate towards the end. Yeah, I
1: I think it's something that for people who enjoy episodes like Delta and the Bannerman or the Happiness Patrol, um, they'll probably be completely on board with it. For people who are very much fans of Season 26 and the very dark, serious tones, this is not that by any means.
0: No A couple of notes I've made here that I've just noticed Um, This was obviously written by Andrew Cartmell And the next story, Animal, is written by Andrew Cartmell as well And I just made a quick note Would he have really written two stories in this season? He'd been the script editor of three seasons up until this point Not written a single story Would he have then suddenly busted out and done two stories in this season? Or perhaps that other story by Robin Mukherjee may have been more may have had more legs, and one of these Cartmel stories might not really have been in this season. Could you have imagined him actually writing two for this season?
1: Not at all. I, I think that's more just a factor of who they were able to bring in for Big Finish and how they wanted to handle it. And just the fact that he never really had a chance to write for the series, I think it was probably exciting to be able to do a couple stories. So, mm. But but from everything I've read, he talked about possibly doing one story, but but nothing more than that.
0: Yeah. The other note I've written here, earlier we were talking about preferred story names. And here, uh, the preferred name for Cartmore would have been Action at a Distance, not Crime of the Century.
1: That's interesting. Um, I I think Crime of the Century is such a bold name. Um, Action at a Distance, um, it it really does take you away from it in a way. It sounds a little too distant for me.
0: (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Shall we give our thumbs up and thumbs downs?
1: So my thumbs up is something a little odd, but when Rain is doing her whole safe cracking scheme, when she's first discussing with the party goer what's going on, she points out a painting in the room, and it's of a horse, but the horse's legs are painted in the wrong direction. And she's just stuck on this idea of how hideously ugly this painting is. And she later makes comment of it to the doctor, and he stops and he agrees with her, even though they're in a really time-sensitive situation. And it's a very Andrew Cartwell-style joke. And it's just one of those things when I was listening to it, I really appreciated that moment, because it said a lot about who Rain was, um, that she was someone who considered herself more high class, um, that she couldn't stand something so gaudy. And just when the Doctor kind of bonded with her in that moment, I, I appreciated that for both of their characters.
0: Okay. My thumbs up, I'll touch on briefly, because I've already spoken about it. It's that we essentially have a field trip to Afghanistan here with guns and vodka and Russians. And and that's great. It it, it suits the era. It doesn't suit a 1990 TV story, though. No. Your thumbs down.
1: Thumbs down. Um, gosh, I'm going to go to when we actually find out what the, the titular crime of the century is uh, without spoiling it. It comes out of left field and it just feels completely tacked onto the story, almost as if it was there to justify the name.
0: Yes. Yes. Agreed. Um, and it, it's interesting, we didn't really get into uh, to Marcus Creevey and what he was doing and what happened in Scotland. But we, we can maybe loop back around to that at the end as we uh, talk about all the characters. For me, the thumbs down was I kept thinking, why is Ace here? You know, <laughs> partly because I knew she was meant to leave and partly because the new companion is here and I want to know more about her. And she's she's getting to do some interesting things like is this the one where she flies the helicopter as well?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Rain gets to fly a helicopter. But even before that, it's established when she's criticizing the helicopter pilot's performance that you learn. Well, she knows what she's talking about. And that's another just really nice piece of establishing character. That uh, just gets woven into the story so that later on when she does show up flying a helicopter, it doesn't seem out of place.
0: Yeah, yeah, we we get the feeling that over the years Marcus creevy has gone from small-time gangster to, uh, you know, a, uh, a uh, semi-respectable businessman perhaps he'd like to see himself as. And he's put his daughter through all these finishing schools <laughs> and she can probably ride horses and fly helicopters and do all sorts of things. She, actually sword fighting as well when... Um, Something happened in this episode, which I won't go into. I thought, oh, she's about to do some sword fighting. And uh, it actually turned out to be Ace who did the sword fighting. Um, maybe again making me think, uh eh, what?
1: Yeah, that fits into the thumbs down category again, because it would have been much more interesting to see the new character standing out in that moment.
0: Yeah, exactly. So for a mark out of 10, I actually like this more than the first story even for some of the things i've said here and i would give it a seven and a half out of ten
1: wow um i'm i'm stuck between seven and eight i think that as far as the dialogue goes and the actual composition of the writing this is the most well-written story i don't know that the plot holds up as well but i as far as some of the stuff we might talk about later but i think as far as the writing goes um i would i would agree seven and a half out of ten sounds perfect
0: all righty shall we move on to animal
1: absolutely So, Animal, by Andrew Cartmel. Again, Margrave University in 2001, the far-flung future. It doesn't say that. I'm throwing that in. And Rain Creevy is enjoying her first trip into the future. For the Doctor, there are mysteries to solve. What are the alien creatures imprisoned in the silent science labs? And what are the true motives of the student Scobie and his followers? With enemies on all sides, the Doctor teams up with his old friend Brigadier Bambera and the forces of unit in a battle for the future of the whole world.
0: Yes, indeed. And into the production notes, this is again from Andrew Cartmel, This was quite a different writing experience from Crime of the Century. Here there was no iconic opening scene to live up to, and consequently none of the sense I'd had in the previous story of finally releasing a breath that had been held for 20 years, with an understandable accompanying sense of relief. But there were plenty of other pleasures on offer. The three-way relationship between Rain, Ace, and the Doctor had begun to warm up, and I was enjoying pairing the characters off and also writing them as a trio. On the show, I'd always been a puritanically one-companion kind of guy, but here I began to see the potential when you have a slightly larger TARDIS crew. My original title for this four-parter was Blood and Iron, which I thought was pretty damn clever, but it became less relevant as emphasis was shifted in the story, and in the end, Big Finish felt we should stick with the titles fans had become familiar with over the decades – Quite spuriously as it happens I love the university campus setting of the story It's a location that stimulates ideas And suggests possibilities And one that hasn't been overused in the series Well, until series 10, Andrew um, <laughs> he, he was writing this seven years ago, folks And in terms of characters It also saw the return of some old favourites This was a unit adventure Since that elite outfit provided some security And oversight for the experimental laboratory At Margrave University But then I realised that the period of the story in the presence of unit Gave rise to a very interesting possibility. And I might stop there so we can get into discussing it. Your initial thoughts on Animal, Mike.
1: Uh, Briefest way I can say uh, I loved it. This was my favorite of the season. Just a quick uh, another piece of annotation there. Animal was actually a name that a fan came up with on some kind of news group or something like that. It, It wasn't a story name that Andrew had ever come up with. But then later on when he was doing interviews about the season, things like that, he actually said, well, Animal, that works. And then he came up with a story for that title. Mm. So it's it's not something where he already had an existing story and worked from there. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the fact that this was a future setting for both, both Ace and Rain worked really well. So things that would have seemed really silly to us, like they're being so enamored or, or fascinated by cell phones – You know, I mean, at this point, everybody has one, but the late 80s, it was something pretty much relatively not anybody would have. So just little pieces like that was fun. I know it probably throws unit dating even further out of whack, but (laughs) what can you do there? Uh, Brigadier Bambera coming back was wonderful. And I'll kind of stop there and throw it back to you.
0: Yes, I really enjoyed that this was at a university. I I made that gag earlier that Series 10 obviously has a a bit of a university setting, too. But thinking back to this being, say, a TV story in the 80s, going to this university and a university which would have been in the future at that time was well handled. I, too, liked the way it wasn't overplayed when Rain came across like a modern mobile phone. Well, modern for 2001. Gosh, that would still seem prehistoric to us today. But to her, that was like, oh, amazing. I mean, her father, I dare say, probably had a mobile phone, probably one of those huge brick ones. Actually, he has a car phone, if I think back to that second episode. That's that, that
1: is right, yeah. He's yeah, talking he on his
0: car phone, Yes, yeah, So, yes, yeah, so she would be familiar with that and then sees this much smaller device. I often think about that when you think of, oh, could we have characters from the past come into Doctor Who? And it's like, oh, that's really hard to write. If you think of writing Jamie in the modern series, gosh, he'd be always saying, oh, what's this, what's that? But when it's only from, say, 1990 through to 2001... It's enough time that a lot's happened. In fact, Rain says, oh, look at that car. You know, she's completely blown away with how a car looks. But it's not completely over the top because it still looks relatively like the cars she would have known from 11 years earlier.
1: Yeah, I would would agree. You know, it's the jump, say, it's it's the back to the future syndrome. The, The jump from 1955 to 1985 seems just drastic. But the jump from 1985 until now doesn't seem that significant. I mean, a lot has changed as far as things like cell phones, personal computers, tablets, um, all, all these different things. But, but it, it's it's not that drastic gap like we would have seen from fifty-five to eighty-five.
0: Yeah, to to get into the computer age was the biggest jump i think and now we're just sort of finessing it, you by you. it's uh yeah i quite agree so i like the way rain is um handled here these creatures these alien creatures you mentioned in the blurb in the science labs are they all but crinoids they're not named but to me i was thinking these are crinoids surely but, these are crinoids
1: we we have plant creatures that want to eat eat people and we have a character named Scobie. scoby which if you say it fast enough, you could be yelling Scorby. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know if that was an intentional thing or if it was just a, I'm going to plop, plop this in there and just see if anybody notices. I, I don't know. Um, it, of course, it's hard for any classic Who fan to not pick that out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Infiltrating the university, I guess it does give Ace and Rain something to do. But again, I'm thinking... This could just be one companion doing this. It's interesting in Andrew's notes that, you know, he thought himself puritanically one companion uh, kind of guy. But he's enjoying riding multiple companions here. He's enjoying riding this... Uh, I don't know. Th- there's a bit of bitching between <laughs> Rain and Ace at times. It's uh, It's quite bitchy. I'm not sure that it always landed for me. I don't know whether that's again because I'm thinking, Ace really shouldn't be here. I just want the new companion to be doing her thing... Or it's just making me think, oh, mm, this is like the worst parts of my favourite era, which is the Davison era, um, where there was a <laughs> lot of bitching between the companions. And that is something I do actually don't... I, I don't get into that at all. You know, and I'm thinking... And I'm reminded of it here, so your thoughts on the companions and their relationship with each other, which Andrew seems to love, but I'm I'm not so sure.
1: You know, I, I I feel the same way about the Davison era and it's why I've struggled to really appreciate that era is because I get so frustrated with everyone surrounding the doctor that I just want to turn it off. Mm. And I didn't feel like it was to quite that level with this story, but I feel like when those moments occur, it actually lowers the character of ACE from where she's reached at the end of season 26 she should be mature enough to be able to just kind of recognize this other person has a different life and be able to deal with it. But instead, it feels like she's kind of back to that school girl throwing out these ridiculous insults. It's, it's very much kind of a working class versus educated class dy- dynamic. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it could be a little bit more energetic that way, but I, I didn't really feel it was necessary. And I And I definitely agree with your first point. There's nothing here that one companion couldn't have done on their own.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, Rain doesn't get away scot-free here. She throws out that, well, where did you go to university again, Ace? You know, and I'm thinking, gosh, if I was time-travelling and I'd gone into the future, uh, bitching to the other companion, probably the last thing on my mind, I'd be more interested (laughs) in what was going on around me rather than trying to score points that I went to university and she didn't. It it just sort of brought her character down a bit for me as well.
1: Yeah. I I still think Rain was, was decent in this story, but again, you already see how when you put those two together... It diminishes both characters.
0: Yeah, it certainly does. I enjoyed in this story um, the initially, and that's probably not a spoil. I don't know the initially <laughs> peaceful intentions of the alien invaders. They came across as quite interesting. The way they were talking about um, mice. They was it mice they'd liberated from the lab. And they were, you know, extolling the virtues, look at their little noses, look at this, look at that, you know, they are kind of saying, how could you be experimenting on these creatures? (laughs) You know, and I'm thinking, this is a really interesting alien race. Then it all sort of shifts.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean stepping back for a moment is we we mentioned that there was some some plant type creatures um those were being experimented on in the lab um by a unit and university students and then there's another race um that an environmentalist uh, kind of like an animal rights protester he uh, he has some satellite and somehow he's reached out to a race called the Numlocks and he brings the Numlocks to earth and the Numlocks free some mice things like that but they seem to have really great intentions. And at this point, I'm going to have to tell you that uh, I'm going to spoil something really significant. So if you don't want to hear probably the best part of this story, skip ahead about two minutes or so. (laughs) The Numlocks, well, first off, they speak in a very dry, monotone voice, and they announce themselves as firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn before they speak. But anyway,
0: are you auditioning?
1: (laughs) Oh, I I would love to. Uh, This is one of my favorites.
0: Big finish. Take note.
1: (laughs) Numlocks is a stupid name. No way around it. But at the same time, there's this sort of brilliant thing that they repeatedly promise the humans and, and the doctor, you will come to no pain. And this is repeated over and over again. And this is a gag that could never work in text. It could never work in a comic book fashion, could work on TV. But I think it's brilliant for the format of audio dialogue, because the doctor finally realizes it's not that there will be no pain, which anyone comes to. It's that they will come to learn about pain. And when that shift comes, when the doctor makes that realization that they're saying that basically you're going to be in some deep crap, um, you're going to come to tremendous pain, it it almost evoked Hellraiser to me. Mm. And everything shifted that these genial aliens were actually really sinister. I had to push stop and I just had to shake my head for about a good three minutes. And uh, I I just said, Andrew, you magnificent bastard. (laughs) I thought it was such a wonderful piece of writing and such a clever I don't want to say gimmick because that belittles it. Uh, it was just such a clever piece of writing. It blew me away.
0: Agreed. I was listening to this in the car driving home one night and the doctor saying, you know, you said they would come to no pain. And then he realizes K-N-O-W pain, <laughs> not N-O pain. And again, yes, I I thought similarly. I thought that's really clever. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good, 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 good. You know, it, it's just one of those moments where you... I was completely sucked in and I'm because I, I was listening to the audio thinking, yeah, that's what they have been saying. How did they get around this? It, it did not occur to me in the slightest. And I love when the rug can be pulled from under me like that. I, I love it.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's very much the mystery writer in Andrew. Um, I think that that's something where, you know, I, I can't say if it started from that point. And next time I see him, I'm going to have to ask him because I, I just brilliant, just completely brilliant.
0: The support cast in this episode, we obviously have this brilliant student, his girlfriend, who who herself is undercover. Um, what did you think
1: of them? I, I thought they were decent. I, I, you know, I was interested in the characters throughout the story. I, I don't think they were necessarily, like, amazingly fascinating, but I thought they really served the roles they were there for. And there were a few double turns as the story went along that kept them really being worthwhile.
0: Absolutely, and for me, you've already touched on Bambera and Unit. I'll say that I love seeing them back as well. Angela Bruce still sounds exactly like she does in Battlefield. It was disappointing that there wasn't a shame moment as well, but uh, we can't have it all.
1: Did we not get? Wow, well, I guess maybe we didn't get a shame. Gosh, you're right. Oh no!
0: Look, if there was a, <laughs> if there was a shame moment, I I missed it. Maybe I was making a, a U turn or something at the time in my car <laughs> and concentrating. I, will, on the I road. would be
1: happy. I will be happy to go back and double check. Um, I will spend that two hours. But uh, one thing I like is she has a recurring gimmick in this story. And again, this isn't a big spoiler, but um, she'll suggest something to the doctor. And of course, in doctor fashion, he does the complete opposite. And she will just immediately start saying, I would like to go on the record as stating. Yes. <laughs> and, and and basically starts absolving herself of any kind of culpability with the situation.
0: Yes. Also, speaking of unit, I've got to raise the uh, her sergeant, who at the end of, is it episode one? I think he's he is going to kill Ace in cold blood, and he's very sinister. But then for the rest of the story, he's almost like a joke character, a comedic character. I didn't think that kind of gelled so well. He's gone from, he is really going to kill her, No, no doubt about it to being scared of everything, like the, the thing that lifts them up to the spaceship, and just in general, he's kind of incompetent. Did you? It was almost like two different characters. Did you pick up on that at all?
1: Um, yeah, I, I felt like the evolution of the character was really kind of bizarre. When he starts out, he's very sinister, but he's also very paranoid. And I think that was what was kind of the most peculiar thing, was sort of like, how did this guy make it into unit? Hmm. And then, you know, he kind of gets browbeaten by the Brigadier, and from there on out... He's just kind of this beaten down character who doesn't want to be a part of any of this, which I I think if it maybe wasn't for that first scene where he's going to shoot Ace might not have been so bad. But the fact that he goes from really being in the strong way that he's going to kill Ace versus where he ends up being a very weak character, it just didn't mesh or didn't really flow properly.
0: Agreed. Shall we move on to our thumbs up and thumbs down?
1: Sure. Uh, thumbs up, aside from the uh, spoilery statement I mentioned already. Um, I, w- I would just have to go to the doctor in this story. I thought this was the strongest use of S- uh, Sylvester without the se- throughout the series, and uh, I-, I just really liked the- his work here.
0: Absolutely. My thumbs up, and I'm surprised you didn't call it on this one, the big twist based on semantics.
1: It, yeah, I, I feel like that one almost is just, yeah, that's got to be automatic. So yeah.
0: <laughs> Okay. My thumbs down, meanwhile, was the Numlocks. The name, that is. What they are like and, and their big twist and everything, that that's fantastic. But the name, was Andrew Cartmell just looking at his keyboard, looking for inspiration? <laughs> and thought, <laughs> ah, Numlock. Okay, Numlocks. Yeah. I assume so. It's just, every time I heard the name, it grated on me.
1: You know, it's kind of like the the old joke about when did George Lucas start running out of names for Star Wars toys, um, and, it, and it does kind of feel like that, where it's like just throw any old thing against the wall and let it stick. Yeah. As as far as a thumbs down, um, I, I guess I felt like neither of the companions necessarily had any strong individual moments. Thankfully, this was a strong enough story that that didn't drag it down. But I just I would like to see a little more personality out of my companions than maybe what we got here
0: good call for a mark out of 10 i'm giving it a 7 out of 10 it's almost a seven and a half it's almost as good as the previous story but it just it just fell down a little for me towards the end
1: yeah i i would have to go eight out of 10 mm-hmm. um I, I think there's a few things that hold it back but for me i think that just the quality of the plotting as well as just some of the the witticisms that come through this story are really worth it Um, it's, it's, I kind of, with all these stories, I tried to take a step back to not be in super critical mode to just say, did I enjoy it? And did I have fun listening to it?
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. Moving on to our final story for the, for the season, as I'll call it. It, This is Earth Aid written by Ben Aronovich and Andrew Cartmel. The blurb is as follows. Welcome aboard the space vessel Vancouver. Its mission to guard a vast shipment of grain from earth to the planet's safe nest home. Its captain is called Ace. She seems a little unsure of herself. In fact, some might almost think she was new to the job. Its medical officer is simply called the Doctor, and he's perhaps not all he seems either. When mysterious ships target the Vancouver, Ace and the Doctor are pushed to the limit. Meanwhile, there's something nasty in the grain containers, and it's not very happy.
1: So we've got some more production notes here by Andrew Cartmel. This was in March of 2011. So this story was actually recorded a good four to five months after the previous story, uh, which is kind of an interesting that there, uh, interesting note that there was that gap between them, especially since you had so many returning characters and returning villains. Um, and even some of the special features call that out. But going into Andrew's notes, this story had its origins in a brilliant opening scene devised by Ben Aronovich. He had dreamed up a sequence in which Ace was acting as the commander of a starship, James T. Kirk style, only for the audience to learn that she had virtually no idea what she was doing, and she was completely out of her depth. Thanks, of course, to the Doctor. Rather like the scene with Rain cracking the safe in the crime of the century, this teaser had assumed kind of a mythic status, so it was very strange and very pleasurable sensation to be able to bring it to life after all these years. The bonus, though, was that we discovered this story could feature to good advantage both Ace and Rain. Working with the doctors, he probes the mystery of what had occurred on a grain freighter turned ghost ship. Other old friends, or rather foes, surface in the shape of the Metatraxi, a warlike race who'd become something of a feature in this series. And it does go on a little bit more, but that's kind of the key of those notes there.
0: Yes, and obviously this is one of those big intros, as mentioned there, that everyone's heard about over the years who's who's had anything to do with reading about Season 27. And it was so great to see it pay off. I'm not sure how well it would have looked on TV in 1990, but on audio, it's great. And I'm just going to go out there straight away and say these Star Trek references, like Ace is trying to be Picard. By saying things i make it so and so on i found it hilarious part of me was thinking hey she would have left earth before next generation was on tv putting that aside (laughs) she is playing picard i assume she's watched it on dvd on the tardis scanner or something i just found that fun i'm sure though that some star trek fans or maybe even some general sci-fi fans doctor who fans might think oh that's cliched that's silly mike where do you sit on that
1: I like those parts of it definitely. I, I thought uh Belay, that was another one she took great pride in saying. Yes. <laughs> and just the fact that, you know that at one point somebody I think even has to explain to her what the fore and the aft are on a ship. So so just the fact that she's completely fudging the whole thing. I mean it just it's it's kind of a, a cute gimmick and it's one that I actually did not get tired of, surprisingly, throughout the story
0: that's something i've made in my notes here it it continues through the whole story but it doesn't get old surprisingly because i think it's one of those things that almost could get old but it just stays the right side of it for me at least it sounds like for you into being just fun
1: yeah i i think that you know we're kind of spoiled in the fact that we've had so many star trek parodies over the years and And, to kind of put yourself back into this era before we had all these parodies, we didn't have a galaxy quest, things like that um I, I think it feels honest to still do a parody like this because it was intended back then, if that makes any sense you know it's it's not like they're trying to jump on something or you know he doesn't steal gimmicks from other comedies that have incorporated this along the way mm, exactly. I
0: like the uh the the intrigue that's happening among the crew in this story, one of the guys in particular. You can tell from the start that Ace isn't who she's meant to be. The the security team, the away team leader, she's a bit unsure. But then there's another officer on the ship who's maybe having her doubts, but says we've, we've still got to respect the captain. You know, she is the captain. So there's this sort of theme going through the crew. They're not too sure what's happening. Whilst, meanwhile, the Doctor and Ace are investigating what's going on in the, in the wider story and what's going on with this grain and so on. So I found there to be some nice layers in this story. Um, the name EarthAid was kind of confusing to me at first. I was, I kept thinking of like Live Aid, and I was thinking, is this about a concert or something? <laughs> you
1: know? well, and, and it was supposed to be along those lines originally. Um, I, from what I understand, Ben wanted to parody something along the lines of how you had all these different Live Aid, Farm Aid, all these different things. And part of it was supposed to be a parody on how little good those actually do. Um, mm-hmm. How much of that actually translated to this story? I would say very little. Yeah. It, it does seem like... Or is this something where they're coming to save Earth or what would it be when Earth really doesn't even play into the story at all?
0: No, no, not at all. They're, they're heading to this other this other planet. And, of course, mentioned in Andrew's notes there, the Metatraxi comeback. And they've been the theme all through these stories. And, and again, this is very different for a, what would have been a 1990s series to have this ongoing theme. Very common now, very weird back then. I kind of liked it. I kind of like them coming back and here, they're really annoyed with the Doctor. Even though they're not in in the greatest (laughs) position, when we meet them, they're actually tied up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, some some mysterious force has actually gotten the better of the Metatraxi as well. Uh, I I thought the first half of the story was fairly interesting as far as the fact that you did have this ghost ship, you weren't sure what was going on. Mm -hmm. I would say there was some tension to it throughout. But I feel like as the story went on, the sense of danger and the sense of intrigue really just evaporated. And it it really lost a lot of its push as it went along.
0: I agree. And in fact, to jump towards the end, it just got really, really weird. Um, I I think I'm going to have to throw a spoiler out here. The communicating with the planet and having the planet be both the mother to the Metatraxie or adopted mother to the Metatraxie and mother to the grub creatures that are on the grain ship and the planet talking because they have this device that can do that. I just, I thought this is losing me. Maybe, maybe it's an eighties weird kind of thing that could have worked. Oh, I don't know. It really fell down there for me. How about you?
1: Oh, I, I agree. It, it was already pretty off the rails by the time episode three started for me. Um, One of the biggest detriments to this episode, and I hate to say it because I know that he's a strong actor and he's on the list every time Next Doctor comes up. Uh, (laughs) Patterson Joseph was just not very good in this story. And I think part of it is the way the character was written. Part of it was the choices he made. Um, You know, he very proudly stated, oh, I did an American accent for this one. And it was not a very good American accent. We meet the character singing these ridiculous sea shanties. And it just that character grated on my nerves every time he popped up.
0: Yeah, I couldn't sort of get a feel for for the character at all. You know, when, when he initially comes up, he's on the rowing machine singing the sea shanties. I thought, okay, this is quirky. And then he's, he says, we've got to go to the armory. I'll tell you what's going on when we get to the armory. That seems to be just so he could get a gun and start shooting at them. But then when he stops shooting, everything's still sort of okay between them all. And he just remains a character throughout the whole story. I... I still don't entirely know what his point was or why he survived or how he had the device that could talk to the... You know, I've only listened to it once. How did he have that device that could talk to the planet that was so top secret and so on? That, that all sort of just passed me by on the first listen. Maybe I'd pick it up on the second. But as a character, did you feel... I don't know, it just wasn't kind of explained well?
1: No, I mean, for most of the story, you're just assuming he's some standard guy who's gone crazy from being alone or being out in space all this time. um You learn more about his motives as the story goes on, but it never feels natural or you you just don't get a sense is the character actually crazy? Is he just acting ridiculous to to draw to or to get attention away from himself, or you know that people don't think he's capable of anything it's It's just all over the place it, it was really bad
0: mm, yeah um. I I can sense that we don't have as much to say about this one as the earlier <laughs> ones. Um and again, I was going to say this was meant to be the first story.
1: Yes, and and I think that's one of the biggest detriments is is Rain shows up, oh gosh, I forget if it's in episode 2 or episode 3. She's she's absent as the story starts and that's kind of explained away. Um but she shows up again and it's something that completely pushes any kind of realism. Uh, which I know is ridiculous as we're talking about alien races and and future grain ships and all these things. But but it it basically just said, hey, we need to write her into this story and we have no natural way to do it.
0: Yeah, because when we last left her at the end of Animal, she was going to have some time out on Earth in 2001, her future, to uh, investigate um, her father and why he was dead, essentially. And now she pops up here in the future on a spaceship. What?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and, and we get a scene where she talks about, oh, well, I've been studying computers in that two weeks I spent in uh, you know, and I could totally hack this password. Um, You know, somebody who home PCs weren't even a standard thing when she came from the era she left from. And it's it's kind of if you remember, there's that wonderful moment in Curse of Fenric where we see the doctor write out that note with two pens. Yes. And it's wonderful because it's so brief and it's just such a neat trick. But they don't explain it. They don't elaborate on it. They just do it and move on. This was the exact opposite. This was every bad hacking scene you've seen in any movie. <laughs>
0: yeah. Albeit, hacking in some movies just defies logic. Here, the way she hacks, essentially saying some people type their password accidentally into the, the username section. And, you know, if you, I guess if you just start typing random letters, you might actually see their password pop up. That could <laughs> actually happen but it seemed such a big stretch and it seemed mm, it's believable but it's not believable if that makes sense
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean crime of the century we mentioned about things like the helicopter and the sword fighting the way that they naturally wove those into the story this is the opposite this is something just slapped on top of the story that's completely unnecessary and it takes you out of it
0: yeah and again it just calls to mind this question why did they rearrange all these episodes why didn't we put earth Aid here at the start and just not have rain in it at all maybe and then have the Ice Warriors in the second episode and so on. I don't know. I,
1: I feel like I'm really giving Earth 8 a lot of stick here. And that's because I just feel like it's it's everywhere that this went wrong. Had it been the first story, had it only contained Ace, I think that many of its sins would have seemed less obvious or it just wouldn't have seemed as wrong-headed. But the fact that they shoehorn Rain in, uh, that you have some really obnoxious characters, the fact that by by the time you get to this point, not a lot has happened with Ace since the first story... And after all the growth we've seen, you know, you you expect her to grow as a character, and instead she's stagnant. Mm. And unfortunately, there's just no room for a stagnant character.
0: Agreed. And if you had put this at the start, it means Animal would have been last and finished with Rain saying, I'm going to take time out here to investigate about my father. The series could continue from there with the Doctor and Ace. It's a perfect sort of ending point. I, I don't know why it's in this order. It's bizarre
1: yeah well and one of the interesting notes too is um rain's father marcus creevy there was a lot of intention at least from things i've read of keeping that character around so that in season 28 whatever came next that there would sort of be this uh jackie tyler character for them to come back so when they're on earth they might stop by his house he may help them out with some things and just maybe add a little more down-to-earth nature to the stories and i think that would have been fantastic
0: Oh, that would have been brilliant, because he is a great character, and that's completely believable. He'd have resources, he'd have some money, although he has lost some in the stock market crash, as they talk about in one of the stories. And he'd know some dodgy connections in different countries.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think that would be a lot of fun, you know, and and I kind of like the idea in some of the stories. Like, I know some of the new adventures in the Eighth Doctor adventures, he had a home base on Earth, you know, yeah. he had a house or a mansion. I kind of like that idea that, you know, I mean, the Doctor should always be a wanderer, but for as much time as he spends on Earth, the idea of him having a safe house of some sort, I think it's neat. I like that idea.
0: Yeah, agreed. Look, we should get into wrapping up the whole series. So do we have any oh, yeah. final comments before we go to thumbs up and thumbs down?
1: Just a real fast one. Um, one of the things that's neat about these series is that you do get some Photoshop images inside. So they did a couple, and I posted them on Twitter the other day, where you get uh, Ace looking like she's a member of the Star Trek Bridge crew and the Doctor sitting cross-legged on this futuristic chair. Um, but they also include a lot of pictures of the cast. And I have to admit to a silly moment, I was looking at some of the cast. I'm like, oh, who's this lovely woman? I don't, I don't recognize her at first, but she looks familiar. Well, I look at the cast list, it was Ingrid Oliver, who plays Osgood in the modern series. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and I had no idea the entire time I was listening to the series uh, or the story that she played one of the. Uh, I believe she was the security officer in this one, the, the head of the away team.
0: That's right. Yeah, but,
1: uh, and she was, and she did a good job. But it was just, it's just one of those funny moments that uh, sometimes when you go back to these older big Finish stories, you end up having characters who've been in the new or not characters, but actors who've been in the new series, um, kind of before they hit it big or just before they were associated with who.
0: That's right. As Dirk gently says, everything's connected.
1: There you
0: go. Okay, for me, uh, thumbs up. I've already discussed. It's the Star Trek pastiche. It just doesn't get old. Even though Ace wouldn't have known the Next Generation, but we'll put that to one side. It's it's just fun, and it's a great part of the story. Even though we've sort of slagged this story the most out of the four, I I really enjoyed that aspect.
1: Um, for me, the thumbs up I would have to go with is, um, there's a race called the grubs that's in- involved and, um, not too big of a spoiler here, but the way that they describe everything is very much in terms of taste and flavor. Yes. Uh, that's a delicious idea. That's delectable things like that. And there was one bit of dialogue I really thought was funny in the story.
0: Yeah. And he has a great voice as well. The guy who does it.
1: Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful alien voice. Uh, really all the alien voices in this series have a unique thing to them i guess thing that being a very scientific word but but they bring something unique and different um that makes each one very distinct and it really plays to the strengths of those races
0: it does what's your thumbs down mike
1: um gosh i I almost just want to say everything else um (laughs) and that sounds unnecessarily harsh but i just I, i really felt frustrated by this story and i think that if it can count as a thumbs down the placement at the end of the series it drags down the entire series so that's what i would have to go with
0: Funnily enough, my notes say similar. I've, I've noted this was Ace's big intro story for the season, and here it's pushed to the end, so it just pushes Rain to one side. It just gives Rain sort of not much to do, and I'm wanting to know more about Rain. The, the, this whole theory that they had to somehow keep ace and not let her go away it's just weird i would have liked to have seen like an alternate sort of doctor who i mean big finish has done alternate stories with alternate doctors alternate masters why couldn't this have been a little alternate sort of series where ace does go away to the time lords and rain does become a companion i don't
1: know yeah agreed um as far as a score i'm gonna have to give it a five out of ten and i can't decide if i'm being generous or if i'm being too harsh on this one uh so that's why i'm just kind of plopping right in the middle with a five
0: Yeah, I would go with a 6 out of 10, which to you might even sound generous, but I don't know. There were bits of it that I did enjoy. I thought parts of it were well acted. The music, which we haven't even discussed through all these stories, feels very contemporary to the McCoy era without being an 80s pastiche. I, yeah, yeah, I can't say more (laughs) than 6 out of 10.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that's still fair, because I think there's a lot that is enjoyable about this story, um, and I think that if it was just taken on its own, if this was the only story somebody picked up from the season, they probably would feel more generous towards it. But when you're looking at all four stories as a whole, it drags things down. Mm.
0: All right, let's summarize the four stories, then. Does it work as a alternate season?
1: Well, it's interesting. I would say... First off, it doesn't feel like what season 27 would have felt like at all, and that's basing it on the evolution of what we saw from 24 to 25 to 26, and now an imaginary 27. This idea that they wanted to have the Doctor feel more mysterious, darker, less knowable, that wasn't the Doctor we got in these four stories. Perhaps in the first story, but not in the later stories. Instead, this feels like a romp. There's some serious moments along the ways. But for the most part, it's it's. there's a lot of silliness, there's a lot of cleverness, um, things that just wouldn't have felt at home at all. Any of these stories, I think, with the exception of Thin Ice, if you tried to fit them into season 25 or 26, would have stuck out like a sore thumb.
0: Mm. Yeah, from the surfer dude Metatraxi to the fish finger-eating Ice Warriors, there's there's humor liberally thrown through all of this. And I'm just wondering whether... The writers perhaps sat down and thought, okay, this is our chance to tell these stories that we only have bare bones outlines of. Let's have some fun. And they haven't really perhaps thought too deeply about the era they're being wedged (laughs) into. Because, yes, the Doctor was heading in a much darker direction and to suddenly think he's this kind of Doctor. Like, I'm imagining him in these stories, to, to put it in a really basic way, I'm imagining him back in the beige jacket and not the chocolate brown jacket, for example.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Um, you know, this, this is a doctor who would have been at home in Delta and the Bannerman, which I adore, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like there's that progression there. And I think that's probably my biggest reluctance with this season is that it doesn't feel like what I personally want from what I've read in the past and what I would have expected it to be. And it's got the shadow of the new adventures over it and other doctor who audios over it, that it feels like it's incredibly fun But I think as fans, especially the way that the new series is developed, when we have these sort of special things, like when we have anniversary stories or stories where old characters come back, we expect it to be epic. And these aren't epic stories. They're fun stories. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. That's perfectly okay. But I don't know that there was anything that could have been done. I mean, they could have picked the four best new adventure stories and done those as a season. And I still don't think it would have lived up to what people like me who this is their era, I don't think it would have lived up to our expectations. It definitely didn't live up to mine, but I think it's really excellent for what it is.
0: Mm, it's interesting you bring up the new adventures because obviously you you love the new adventures. This is an era you're, you're very much into. I think of, say, Ace running off to Afghanistan with her guns and vodka as being a far more new adventuresy kind of thing than a, uh, a TV from 1990 kind of thing. Um, Yeah. And yet that still doesn't land for you as a fan of the new adventures.
1: Yeah, I I think that the new adventures were very light on comedy for the most part. Um, There was this idea of the doctor as the great manipulator, which we saw very little of in these stories. And again, it's stuff that even to me, it's maybe it's not really what I want to see anymore, but it's stuff that is just so ingrained as far as that's what the era was, when in fact, maybe it wasn't so much. Mm. And now I'm talking myself in circles. Um, <laughs> but but no, it's, it's just one of those things where I think that anytime you have 20 plus years of expectation, that nothing is going to completely live up to what you're expecting. I mean, using kind of a sideline analogy, episode one of Star Wars, we all knew what we wanted and what we got was enjoyable, but it wasn't necessarily the same thing that we expected or hoped for.
0: Mm. That's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, I
1: can yeah. see that. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I mean, I, I consider Andrew a pal. You know, I, I've seen him at multiple conventions. I've interviewed him. We joke around a lot. You know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say friend, but at least a pal, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I greatly enjoy his work and what he brings to it. You know, he's done some excellent new adventure novels um, and his book, the vinyl De- or his book series, The Vinyl Detective, has nothing to do with Doctor Who. But if you enjoy humor, mysteries, um, it has kind of a Douglas Adams, Dirk Gently feel with maybe not being quite so absurd, but just really vivid characters. I can't recommend that series enough. I I just think that both the books he's put out so far have just been wonderful.
0: Yeah, everyone I know who's read them has has said the same thing. So folks, do yourself a favor, go out and pick one up. Overall, Mike, would you recommend this as a as a season to people, or would you just pick out one of the stories? Would you perhaps recommend it with some caveats how How would you recommend <laughs> a who fan goes about listening to this, or should they listen to this
1: so if you're a fan of the era, I think you almost have to listen to all four. My recommendation would be listen to the first three and stop there, and then just let your imagination run wild. I think if you skip Earth Aid, you're really not missing anything aside from the Star Trek jokes. I think Animal is probably the only story that could stand on its own. Uh, you have the Metatrax scene, a kind of a cute cameo, but aside from that, it's kind of its own thing. Um, but starting with uh, Crime of the Century would be very difficult. And I think if you if you enjoy Thin Ice, you would just flow naturally into Crime of the Century.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The the Creevy connection there with Marcus Creevy is is very strong.
1: And uh, real quick, there's a there's a couple other stories I'll throw out, and this is gonna be real fast because I know we're running long. But uh, if you're interested in Seventh Doctor and hearing more of his stories, there's a few things I would mention. Um, one of them is called Dust Breeding, and it features some classic villainy in there that I don't want to say too much about. But it's one of the earlier new adventure, or sorry, one of the earlier uh, big finish adventures, and it's it's very strong. There's one called Live Thirty Four, and it's almost a found footage thing in that it's all news broadcasts. There's no Doctor Who intro credits, anything like that. You never actually see things from our character's perspective. It's all done via reporters or news interviews or things like that. But you get to see that classic Seventh Doctor overthrows the government in one night kind of story through the citizen's eyes. And it's sort of unique take. And um, one last one I'll mention, uh, and this really ties into what we've talked about, is there's a story called Unit Dominion. It's a four-part story box set, and it features the Seventh Doctor in Reign in addition to unit characters who are all new to that story. And if you wanted to see more of Rain, that's where you should go. Um, Ace has a cameo in the story, but she's not a significant character. So thankfully, for the first time, you get to see the Doctor and Rain working as a duo, as well as you get a future Doctor we haven't met yet. So unit dominion probably is, if you're interested in the stories we discussed, or if you want to hear something along those lines, unit dominion by Nick Briggs is the place to go. And most of those stories are available on the Spotify program. So if you have Spotify, you can find some of those there.
0: Oh, very interesting. Is it fair to say that Rain hasn't popped up as much as she might have been expected to pop up in future Big Finish productions? I've not, I've not followed a lot of the Sylvester Big Finishes, so I can say that up front. But just in reviews I've read and so on, I've not really detected her being too much of a regular companion. Does she only pop up sparingly
1: in the range? Uh, I think Unit Dominion is her only other appearance. Um, interestingly that would enough, be why. <laughs> Beth, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, though, Beth Chalmers, uh, the actress who plays her, is in tons of Big Finish. Uh, she is in just about every range they've ever done, uh, and she does a good job. So, so understandably. But, uh, but as far as Rain, it just seems like whether the character didn't stick or whether it just just maybe wasn't that interest. I, I don't know. But yeah, it's it's a shame she hasn't shown up more.
0: I can see perhaps why she might not land with people if these were the the four introductory stories for her. And again, it comes back to something we've said all through this recording. (laughs) It's, It's Ace. And Ace is great. I love Sophie Aldred. I love Ace. I love ringing her up last year on the phone and interviewing her for this podcast. So it's not that I have a problem with her at all. But in these four stories, she just totally overshadows rain and she's not really meant to be in at least two of these stories
1: yeah i I think i think we all are on the same page you know we love sophie we love the character but part of what's beautiful about doctor who and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with wanda's email and that's the fact that there is so much doctor who out there and there's this diversity and the fact that when you have a doctor who's stuck with one companion for a very long time you don't get to see the best of that doctor but perhaps you also don't get to see the best of what else could happen Um, And that's where, you know, just characters that, you know, like the ninth doctor, we only ever see him with Rose. And if we could have seen him with another companion, it could have been so much different. Uh, Again, if we could have had rain solo for more stories, it would have been so much better. And just the fact that I can like rain, I can like Ace, I even like Mel, I like the fact that there's these diversity of characters um and just that they come from different backgrounds and things like that and heaven knows we need more actual real diversity in doctor who and that's a whole nother thing but that's why bill is such a breath of fresh air she doesn't feel like any character we've had so far Hmm. so so to me is i'm more about when you have these type of opportunities really leap at it and do something new don't just stick to what's expected of you
0: yeah i agree and with you bringing us back to Wanda's email, you've brought us full circle for this podcast. So all that's left for me to say is thank you so much for joining us in this David Free episode, uh, Mike. It's been really awesome sitting and chatting with you about these audios.
1: Well, thank you. And and to anyone out there, if you ever need someone to come on and talk about the Carmel um <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't shut up. So, yeah, there you go. But no, thank you, Rob. <laughs> I, I love being a part of the Doctor Who Show Network. And uh, I, I really love all the work you guys do here.
0: And people can, of course, reach you on, on Twitter at M.A. Solko. Is that the, the preferred place for people to get in touch? Yeah,
1: that's that's about the only uh, place is uh, at M-A-S-O-L-K-O. You can find me at TimescoopCast, but not much is going to happen there probably. <laughs> so not not much in the near future. So
0: Not yeah. unless Pete comes back.
1: Uh, if Pete comes back, there will be a celebration.
0: <laughs> Thanks again, Mike. Thank you. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.